This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 5th, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 432 of Defender Radio. We're going to dive into the interview with Dr. Shelley Alexander shortly, but first I wanted to tell you about an amazing opportunity. A generous donor has offered to match all new and increased monthly donations up to $10,000 in the next few weeks. That means if you sign up with the Fur Bears as a monthly donor for as little as $5, your first month's donation will count as $10 for us. And if you're already a monthly donor, an increase of $5 to your ongoing gift will count as $10 for that first month too. Monthly donations help us plan out long-term strategy and respond to crises facing animals, such as those injured through cruel traps or beaver families who are facing slaughter that we can protect with our in-field solutions. For just the price of a latte once a month, you can make a real difference. Please head to thefurbears.com monthly to give now. Conversations about coyotes can quickly get controversial, particularly in the media. Are they simply another creature trying to care for their families and live life peacefully? Or are they menacing charlatans waiting to pluck away what we love most? If you're listening to this show, chances are you agree with the former, which also happens to be based in fact. But if you read or watch news, or worse, read social media comments, you'll know there's an awful lot of people who believe the latter is true. That's one of the reasons why we need to question the language we use the way we have conversations, and how we perceive our own and others' experiences with coyotes. At the forefront of these difficult questions is Dr. Shelley Alexander of the University of Calgary. Dr. Alexander has authored, co-authored, and supervised significant studies, including a media content analysis that highlighted the veracity of media bias in reporting on coyote conflict. In a conversation with Defender Radio, Dr. Alexander explored the results of her past studies, discussed the misinterpretation of coyote behavior, and helped us find the questions we must ask that change the conversations we have about coyotes. You and I first met and first started talking when I I learned of your uh, media content analysis on coyotes, and and it was in the media, and looking at how people talk about coyotes uh, and things like that. I think that's really the interesting place to start. I mean, you're obviously an animal lover. At what point did you decide, hey, this is where I want to focus with my uh, academic career? I think that shift probably didn't happen immediately, but over time, when you're doing research on wildlife, you start to realize more and more that issues that crop up with animals or conflict with, with wild animals um, starts with people and how people relate to those animals. And so, um, you know, I looked at ways that I could start to understand that problem in a different way using different methods. And, you know, that happened over about a three-year period, I guess, sort of exploring different techniques, uh, including the media content analysis. And, you know, I was also interested at that time in how, um, you know, society looks at these animals and how we look at things like coyotes differently than a domestic dog and the role that institutions like media have to play 
in that perception and whether or not that perception leads to how, you know, if we treat them negatively as a consequence. And I think, you know, your, your study really highlighted that. And I, I came across it around the same time that I read um, Giving Voice to the Voiceless, and that's the Journalism Standards for Incorporating Non-Human Animals by Doctors uh, Beckoff and Packwood Freeman. Right. And this combination of those two kind of papers really, really, I think, affected how I did my job. Um, because on one hand, it's sort of the, the ethical argument being made in uh, Giving Voice saying, you know, we, the animals have sentience, they have personalities, they have all of these wants and desires, but we never talk about them. And then on the other side, having your paper, which very clearly illustrates um, through, you know, observation, the bias in the media to, to uh, villainize coyotes. Uh, when you started, you know, that paper in particular, did you realize like, or, or how quickly, I should say, did you realize that, like, the results were going to be so obvious? I don't think I had a a prior, really, understanding of how it would how it would all roll out. You know, I had also read that that same paper that you're referring to mm-hmm. around that time, and um, or maybe more when I was trying to understand the patterns that I was seeing in the media reporting. Um, but also, I, I, I forgot to mention that, like you, around the same time, I was reading Beckhoff's book on emotional lives of animals. Yeah. And I think um, I was actually at a point where I was quite frustrated with uh, our inability, as he called it, just to actually get traction and make change on how animals are treated. And it, the, in the preface of that book, you know, I think I was at a point of sort of saying, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And at the preface of that book, um, Mark Beckoff states that, you know, those of us who have the knowledge don't, we, we, we must communicate. We must, we're the only voices that, that will speak for these animals. And so it's connected to that, also that giving voice to the voiceless. Um, and so I didn't, the, the way that when, when you do media content analysis, uh, and at least the approach I used was called grounded theory approach, where you you go in with sort of a blank slate. You have a few ideas of what you're looking for, and, and I was expecting there would be a lot of things like the use of the word attack and that, or, you know, overuse of those kinds of words. I wasn't, I, I didn't know until I started doing the research what what thing what themes would emerge. Um, and so I think there were some that were really surprising to me and that the the paper you referred to um, on the responsibility of journalists to portray things appropriately um, really helped me understand some of that. And one of the points in that paper was about stereotyping species. And I don't think I had thought about the fact that when one coyote behaves in a certain way and then the media responds to that and says coyotes attack coyotes do this coyotes are bad coyotes are frightening all coyotes are then stereotyped by the one behavior of one coyote and so then our reaction to that as a social societal level is um, to treat them all as if they're bad and it's a it's actually something that you're not allowed to do when you're speaking about you know, when you're as a journalist, when you're speaking about people or different groups of people. So that was interesting. And then the, the other thing that I think popped out that I was 
quite surprised about was the there was a sudden shift where it moved into criminalization of the behavior. So the language shifted into uh, things referring to coyotes as assailants or villains, and they were uh, stealing um, or murdering. And uh, so it was it was that that shift. I I don't think I realized the extent to which the media was actually um, misportraying the species. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's it's like the blinking light on the VCR under the TV um, that some of the younger audience may not understand. Uh, but the, <laughs> when the clock wasn't set right and you never noticed it, and then you're sitting and watching a movie and you see that blinking red light, and yeah. it's all you can see. Uh, yeah, you know that's yeah. that's what yeah. it was Everywhere. like for me. Yeah, uh, and that was especially the local competition. And I was sitting there going, "No, that's not right." And I'd find their witness and call that witness and say, "I want you to tell me the story now." Um, and I, I would challenge some of what they said. Say, can you explain this statement uh, or that you just said? And you would very quickly start to unravel the bits where it's, well, I'm guessing at this. Or maybe it wasn't so big. Yeah. Or, you know, you. It, but I, I found personally as a journalist at that time that many media outlets, and I still see this very quickly, just completely accept what they're told. Whereas in any kind of crime or politics, you would never dream of doing that. You would challenge everything. You would research. You would dig in. But what, especially with coyotes, it's just very quickly. Yep, that's what they are. Well, and I, I think part of this might come back to this notion that, you know, animal, animals are different than people, <laughs> or the people aren't animals, I guess. Yeah. And people are complex and people are all different. And we have to acknowledge that they think and they feel and they, and they get offended. And, um, whereas when you're dealing with, uh, this is my, just my uh, opinion or, or mm-hmm. reflection on it is that, um, it's not a complex issue, right? So you wouldn't have to ask those, those questions that would really get at the nuts and bolts of what happened because it's just simply you encountered an animal. And of course the description of what happened would be, you know, what the person experiences. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think there's, there's a simplification of it. So a lack of understanding that every encounter with every animal is going to be different. Um, And so therefore you might need to probe and people don't understand Every person doesn't understand coyote behavior, and every mm-hmm. journalist doesn't understand coyote behavior. Um, and so, getting at the essence of what actually happened um, is is overlooked, right? Well, and I think that I think that's very accurate. Again, when we're talking about a journalist's perception, um, one that would come up a lot, and I'm sure you've seen this too in the media, someone say the coyote was bold, and this is something I've since written about regularly for the fur bears. Uh, and I often cite your work. Uh, I cite your work a lot. I should probably give you some money or something. But um, <laughs> as long uh, as it's it, as long as it's doing doing good for the coyotes, that's that's the main thing. All uh, right, I'm gonna. I've got you recorded saying that, so now I owe you nothing. Um, <laughs> but no, I and um, one that comes up frequently is people say it's bold behavior, and it's when a coyote stops and watches and doesn't run uh, away, yeah. even if you yell or raise your arms and they can't fathom that that coyote doesn't see you as a threat from 50 yards away. And that's one that I, I constantly come up against. Um, and journalists accept it. Um, 
and promote that concept of it's a bold coyote. It, and all of a sudden it, that becomes the headline. And and it's tricky, right? And yeah, and I and I think part of part of the issue is around the practice of journalism and the need to be sensational and you know it's and and journalists aren't always to blame right it's you might write a balanced piece and then the editor wants to make it uh more volatile so it grabs attention and we all get that and so part of it then is educating people to actually understand what they're looking at the the i think part of the issue here too is that there when when a coyote does behave that way it it may be that at about 50 meters or so, a coyote doesn't perceive you as a, um, an issue. Um, but then maybe when you get to be 10 meters away or something, in, in circumstances where it's not habituated, that is abnormal behavior yeah. for it not to move away. And so there's a limit to the language that we have to describe that. And so we tend to gravitate to those words that would that, that just easily come to that, and I'm not sure that we have the appropriate language to I think talk about that without having too many words in there. Yeah, I think that's a very, very right. fair and valid point. In that, uh, and I remember I was actually talking about this with Leslie Sampson, um, Coyote Watch Canada. You yeah. obviously know, uh, yeah. and our audience probably knows by now too. But um, we, we were talking about it, and some reporter said attack. Right, it was a very mm. common type story, and we were talking about it, and it was very clearly a defensive situation, mm-hmm. uh, off leash dog ran into the bush, coyote noises, and a uh, dog came running back. And they say that the coyote attacked the dog. Yeah. And they said, but the journalist doesn't have the tools to describe this in any other way because they haven't been told that that's not an attack. Now, if it had been a bar fight and the, the witness was saying, well, this guy punched me out of nowhere and you said you did nothing, said, well, no, I slapped him in the face first. Yeah. Then they know, okay, well, there was obviously more to this. But with a coyote, there's simply, there, there is no training. There's no knowledge of how that may impact the situation. And I think that's that's a very good way of putting it, as you said, is the, the language just doesn't exist for describing these ex- extremely nuanced situations. Yes, and normally, you know, a coyote would take off. And I think Leslie would say, you know, if a coyote is behaving in a way that's unusual, like approach, like coming within those really close distances, it's a barometer for something that people are doing in that area to have changed its behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 uh, the other, I was going to actually add to that was a description I've heard in my new research on the Foothills Coyote Initiative research is when the, when the coyote actually runs away, cause in outside of the city, they do actually flee. So even when I slow down my vehicle and it's about 100 to 150 meters away, if I slow down my vehicle, they'll they'll bolt. So it's a very different behavior based on their the, the coyote's experiences. Mm-hmm. But one of the things people describe was they 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 really feel uneasy when that animal turns and looks at them. And I found that I found it fascinating because people found that to be an aggressive move, and. Really? And when that's how it was described by a few people as a, something to be concerned about because it stopped and now it's eyeing you up. When actually what's happening is the animal is actually stopping and eyeing you up and going, now am I far enough away from this person that they're no longer a threat to me? Yeah. But it's really interesting how, um, you know, how those, those behaviors get spun almost always to we are on the defensive and they are always looking to um, come at us 
as opposed to they're just trying to get away from us, right? Yeah. Well, and that's, I don't know if you've experienced this and it's, it's purely anecdotal, but I've been on, I think two or three coyote releases, um, uh, from rehab and every time coyote just bolts out of the crates, runs yep. however far and then stops, stops dead and looks back. That's exactly and what it, I am. Yeah. And, and for those of us who were involved in the rescue and rehab, uh, well, for me, it was mostly just the driving, but regardless sort of in that, that moment of release, uh, it's majestic to see. It's beautiful to see this animal all of a sudden return to the wild, looking back and saying, am I safe now? Yeah. And it's it's very heartwarming. But at the same time, someone else sees that and it's extremely unsettling. So that's yeah. that's really interesting how that context changes a very simple behavior. Well, and that's some of what I'm trying to understand with the new research is why, like what, can you actually enter into that um, scenario and give particular pieces of information about coyotes that would help people understand that differently. Some people will be very resistant to that. They're just, they have a specific way of looking at things that that's, you're not going to change it just by telling them it's non-aggressive yeah. or telling them about behavior. But, but these are the kinds of things I think we need to continue to do research on is to understand where are these misperceptions coming from, um, and how do we? How can we enter that system to help people Absolutely. see it differently? Because it's always framed as coyotes trying to be aggressive towards us, even even if it's like you say a defensive situation. For so, for example, like the thing we're dealing with in Calgary right now, uh, if you look at the photographic images just prior that was taken by the guy that was reportedly attacked, and he was bitten. Um, according to the reports. Um, just prior to the attack, he's taking photos of this thing and it's hackling and its teeth are all barred, right? And um, it's it's clearly being antagonized. Yeah. But the person just says, I was attacked. And like you say, nobody looks at the prior. Well, and that's, that's fascinating. In dog circles, um, and a lot of our listeners are, are dog lovers, um, there's constantly videos going around of watch all of the signs this dog is showing. Um, yeah. and I see it too, you know, I've got one dog, JJ, who's, who tends to be reactive and she's a bit of a jerk, um, and very protective of me. And she throws up gang signs constantly. Um, and anyone who knows dogs, they see her and they're like, okay, I'm staying away from her. Right. Like, yeah. and this, this is, she's not aggressive. I make that very clear, but, uh, she's very particular about certain things, um, around her space. And, you know, you, you expect that. And we have sort of some kind of basic understanding of, okay, I see this dog. It's, it's raising its hackles. It's putting its ears back. It's showing me the, you know, the whites of its eyes. Its teeth are bared. Uh, yeah. It's pulling back its lips. It's doing all of these things, it's turning sideways. And we say, okay, that dog doesn't like me. Yet we see that with a coyote. And all of a sudden it, it just doesn't click. And that's, that's to me and really yeah. unusual that we have this disconnect and that's, in fact, when I very first started reporting on coyotes, that's, and that was a piece of advice from Mark Beckoff. Again, it's, it's it's the same group of people over and over again in our circles. Um, but, you know, the piece of advice is think about dog behavior. What would uh, you think if a dog was doing this? It's like, yes, yeah, that and, dog is telling yeah. me to go away. And that's, and, and so that's something that came up in a meeting that, or a presentation I was just involved with the other, the other night uh, when I, when I explained that. Coyotes are just dogs, so you have to think about the fact that you're training them to do specific things. So if 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 what you do is 
you continually feed it and it and it comes up and then it it's your house and then it all of a sudden um starts eating your carrots in your garden and you you run at it and you sort of wave your arms in the air what do you expect a dog is going to do in that situation it's going to look at you and go well you know what kind of consequence is that right like <laughs> but like and they'll learn that well up to a certain distance they're safe and they'll continue to do that but but the but the putting it into the context of of our behavior is tr- training coyotes to do specific things and we can actually train them to do different things or un, you know uh you know with some success untrain some of those things people were were surprised they hadn't thought about it in that sort of paradigm mm-hmm. right um well and that's you know i i think we're talking about this calgary situation and right now uh and we were talking about this before i started recording uh, I had just gotten notification through one of my services uh, of a coyote story, and it's in Northwest Calgary. A, uh, I'm guessing it was at some kind of trail system yeah. um, has been partially blocked off because of the presence of coyotes. And you, as you say, someone came into conflict with coyotes. The interesting thing is um, the way this story is written. It's coyote closure expanded in Northwest Calgary, and it's it's. Relatively simple, but it starts out that it was blocked off because of the presence of coyotes. Um, and then later explains that they are denning coyotes, mm-hmm. but then switches back to the language of the animals had it, had had, I don't know how it's poorly written, uh, probably an intern, uh, a close encounter with a man and his daughter and they needed to take action. Well, who needed to take action? Like, it, mm-hmm. like it's just, it's, it's written almost like when I was in high school and I thought I could be a novelist and I would write a scary scene. You know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of awkwardness. Um, but then you, yeah, you read it and you go, okay, so there's coyotes denning and people are on that path. Yeah. We do this with bears all the time. We say, okay, for the next three weeks, don't go down yeah. this path. I don't think we're there yet. So just, so just like, you know, I don't think people understood the, that the average person really understood dog behavior that well you know, it, or, or even still does today. I, I even see lots of dog owners who don't still don't seem to understand dog behavior. But um, so I think part of part of it is in the education, and part of it again is reframing it as we have no issue with doing that, or, or shouldn't say we have no issue, but we understand doing that when we're dealing with something like a black bear um, or grizzly bear. Like it's sort of become commonplace and what I was what I was happy to see within the review of this uh, situation in Calgary was the one uh, citizen who was interviewed used the word habituation so it's almost like that language is becoming embedded and and understood to some degree Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that we are responsible for that so that was really nice to see I think the city's um, take on it probably it got respun because that they the closure there is because of harassment of the den site leading to conflict with um people so the way it got spun out is is unfortunate yeah because you don't get to the point of it being or very directly that that the reason the closure has to happen is because people are harassing the den uh, not because the den is there but they're get they're intruding on the den and then refusing to um accept the consequence. And I find it, I find it following up on that. I find it interesting because if you were to say, so I've been thinking about analogies for this. If you were to say somebody, um, if you were to go into a complete stranger's house, um, 
and you knew that they had uh, a dog in there that was very protective of the house and you were to get bitten, would you find that unusual, right? Like, so there just doesn't seem to be this understanding that you are trespassing into the private space of this animal. And I think it comes back to not understanding that the, the animals experience the world the same way we mm-hmm. do, right? And that our expectations are a little bit wonky around that. And just for everyone listening to know, I was nodding the whole time. Um, I, I, <laughs> I said, no, I, I, I realized after it's like, wait, I'm, I'm only recording the sound on this. Uh, and my beard is simply not big enough to make that noise. But uh, no, and that's, that's absolutely right. And that's, you know, that's, I'll often use that reference of a bar. Uh, like if you walk into a bar and there's someone drinking a beer and you walk up and you poke them in the face. Um, what do you think's going to exactly, happen? Like you're yeah. creating the situation. Yeah. Um, now speaking of the dogs, one of your other papers, um, you did a lot of really interesting and what I would consider to be almost sort of like expected research. So you did scat analysis, um, you reviewed oh, the yeah. incidents of conflict and stuff. Um, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, so I'm going to make them up um, because I'm a respectable Good. journalist. And uh, no, it was it was almost 100%. It was over 90% of the incidents uh, a dog was off leash when there was conflict. Oh, yeah. And the other okay. one was, I, th- I, th- I want to say below 5% domestic dog and cat in the, in the scats. Um, okay, yeah, you're talking about two different papers there. Okay. So one, I want to be sure that the credit or the diet work goes to my master's student at the time, Victoria Lukasik, did all the diet work on the so project, you, you sent, and then it was it was repeated. You, you sent mm-hmm. the intern out to play with poo, is what you're saying? Yeah, and then it was repeated. <laughs> was repeated about three years later um, by a different student. But the, but the paper you're referring to is the paper that came from Victoria's research okay. and Victoria's now a PhD student. Um, so yes, and the diet, uh, that, that study was really interesting because we, we set out to try to understand whether or not areas where there was lots of um, garbage or, or how much garbage was occurring where and whether or not that was related to incidents of conflict. Uh, and, and so the pet content was very low. Of the 500 scats, um, I think it was three scats actually had pet remains in them so pretty low um uh as a as an overall you know occurrence and we thought that it would be much higher than that going into that the other paper that you're talking about was also from the media content and that was uh um related to yeah just trying to understand the nature of conflicts that arose across canada over a 12-year period between people and coyotes and coyotes and and pets, so dogs, which dogs were attacked under which circumstances, which ones survived, um, you know, differences between small and large dogs and that. And yes, um, 97% of the cases that were reported in the media, if you actually looked at the facts that were presented, um, the person described the dog as having run away after the coyote. So just like the situation you described at the very beginning of our interview, the dogs would take off um, and then they would come back, but it would be reported as coyote attacks dog. And so then I went in separate steps from that to look at the bite patterning on the dogs that would be described. So I looked at whatever ones I could that actually reported the, the where the bites happened. Um, and I went back to 
bite forensics and how what do coyotes do when they are um, a, uh, have a, a den invasion by another pack of coyotes? There's been some research done on that, and and they could see that the type of wounding that was occurring on these medium and large sized dogs that had run after coyotes um, were territorial defense by the coyote. So. Um, you know, the message out of that is if you know coyotes are around and you don't have good control over your dog, like, I mean, immediate recall, um, then you ha- you have to leash it in order to ensure safety, right? Yep. We would not question that. If we walked out onto a busy road with our pet, we would we would take every step we could to make sure that it was protected and have it on the leash, right? But So it's just a matter of just shifting the mindset around that well and i was gonna say i mean I, i'll often sit here in my my city home and look out the window and see people walking their dogs off leash on a busy street but um you folks out west are kind of weird like that so um you'll take personal responsibility <laughs> well. for things uh, no and that's it, it is very true yeah. um and i had a brilliant question lined up for you now it's Uh-oh. gone that happens oh, sometimes uh, no, because I was then I, I was visualizing. There's a there's one guy who walks, and I'll see him walk around the corner, and then ten seconds later, his dog come trotting behind him, and I'm just like, "Come on, dude, really?" Well, yeah, I mean, but I, and I think though, I think the difference there would be if if that dog got run over, um, that owner wouldn't be then well, that that blame. Um, uh, I shouldn't say wouldn't be, but would probably be less likely to blame the driver of the car for running over the dog than they would if the dog was running behind and it got um, attacked by a coyote or it, or it ran off after chased a coyote and then got attacked by it. This, the, the, the responsibility, I think, even though that I, I have a feeling that they would view that differently. They'd be upset that their dog got run over, but they wouldn't necessarily say we need to go out and kill all drivers of cars because, Obviously, they need to be taken out, right? Like it just as they would buy it. Um, I I find it curious too when we talk about the uh, the language of some of this. We are very ready to sort of ascribe the attempted murder on these situations as, as sort of like as we were saying, you know. But if anyone's ever actually seen dogs fight now and i don't mean the scuffs at the dog park uh which we've all seen too and that's no 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 extreme like and it is hazardous and shouldn't be encouraged or allowed to sort of go on unnecessarily but dogs can yell at each other with their jaws and their sounds and everything for 15 20 seconds straight and neither of them will have a scratch Mm -hmm. on them and then dogs who want to hurt each other it can take about five and a half seconds before you start seeing blood. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that the same would be mm-hmm. true of coyotes. Uh, and as you say, you know, you can see that when there are wounds, they've been defensive wounds, um, saying, go away, go away. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to stop you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying, yeah. I'm not trying to eat you. That's the other part. It's not eat. It's not predatory. These aren't wounds that are targeted for, that I'm describing that are targeted mm-hmm. for eating. So how do we communicate some of this? And again, I mean, you know, I feel like our opportunities can often be limited. Um, 
you know, for you in an academic session, you've got people who want to learn. For me, I've got people who are, are, you know, they want to protect animals and want to learn. But it's all of those other people that we really need to get some of this information out to. So how do we start trying to say that wasn't an attack, it was defensive, or he didn't want to necessarily hurt him or, or eat him, he just wanted to scare him away? How do we begin phasing these bits of sort of information in to try and, as you said, sort of get to that point with habituation where people are starting to understand that it's the environment that's created an issue and not the animal. Well, I mean, it, it does come back to education. And I, though I, I don't think education will work for everyone. And, and the research that I'm doing right now is looking at which types of people are sort of resistant, would be resistant to, to education. So there are people who are, are unlikely to, just the way they are in the world, they are unlikely to be pushed into different directions. But I think education is, is, is fundamental, um, and we need to use as many new ways of communicating that as possible. So whatever social media we can, I think all we can do is just, you, you have to just keep up the pressure, keep up the pressure, keep up the messaging. Um, and and the, the other key there is to find those um, analogs, right, that can bring it back so people go, oh, aha, right, okay. So that's what would happen if my if I did that to my dog, or that's what would happen if I walked into the bar, and then it's, you know, uh, and and behaved in a certain way, and then it's, um, so, you know, at the same time, um, trying to educate media somehow to start to probe mm-hmm. into those. And and I think last year, yeah. um, the Society of Conservation Biology conference um, in the U.S. had an entire section on on media and uh, media communication of science and that. So it's becoming more central that we need to use, we need to work together on that. I mean, I have to say that over the last five five years or so five to seven years, I've seen a big change in the way media, at least here, handles these particular situations. They actually are trying to get those other viewpoints. They're not just going for the, the attack, attack, attack. They they seem to know um, that there's a bigger story that needs to be told, and there seems to be a an empathy for the animals involved in the stories. And so I, I think I've seen that there's been positive change in that. And so, I, yeah, I think it's just, you have to continue on and not lose, um, you know, it's easy to get burned out on, on trying to do that. And it's just also, I think, accepting small wins, right? Like, you know, uh, yeah. we're not going to change everybody on this overnight. Um, I wish we could, but it's just not going to happen. But the other thing is getting into schools and, and educating um, kids on the language. I, it's something that I did in, um, I've done at elementary schools, and I put the image up and I like a, of a coyote doing a specific thing, and I asked them to tell me what they see. And their language is so free, right? Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, mm-hmm. it's ugly. It's whatever. But but instead of just being like it's terrifying, it's it looks like it's going to attack. Like it's not. They've they've not lost the ability to see it, and so um, I like to use those venues to try to ch- change the language or help them acquire language that empowers them to see it differently. 
Um, yeah. Well, I, I really like that you said they haven't lost the ability to see it. And I think that's probably a key point um, is as we age, we are besieged by uh, stereotypes and tropes and concepts uh, yeah. of our elders of society. And in some regions, they can be, you know, very obviously um, aggressive against certain types of wildlife. There, there's a great example of... Um, yeah. Uh, Defenders of Wildlife wrapped up their big study and published it uh, on uh, with was it Su- uh, uh, Suzanne Stone, I think, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, uh, blah 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 coexistence, um, and they had the wolves in Idaho, and yeah, when they would go up to some of these these ranchers and they would show them data, saying here's a tagged wolf returning to a, a you know um, a dead site constantly, right where they put their uh, their carcasses. Um, yeah. And then look here, 200 yards away is your herd. So they like they were they were they were they were able to literally show them with physical evidence, mm-hmm. sort of like the step by step how this happened. Mm-hmm. And the the thing I found very interesting about that is in, in that area with wolves, it's people who who for generations have had no wolves on the landscape and all of a sudden have them. So all they know are the old stories. And I think in some of our urban areas, in particular, um, you know, we are for we are starting to see more wildlife just due to, you know, climate change and development and all that kind of stuff. Um, and more people, yep. and getting more people wandering around outside encountering Absolutely. more, right? So, yeah, so yeah. the same thing starts to we happen. Need new stories, yeah, exactly. Right, we need new storylines that people can grab onto uh, and understand. So if they're if you go back to where did they first learn about coyote if it's uh roadrunner and you know or whatever coyote then they have a very particular framework on that if if they've grown up uh and some of my foothills coyote initiative is is trying to untangle some of these questions of you know what what are those grounding stories that uh, or experiences that lead to the way that people behave now and there's a very clear connection to um you know what what they experienced uh as youth and and who taught them differently and it's very challenging uh to i should say it's very difficult to challenge oneself and your own beliefs and thoughts um and that's something on a totally unrelated topic with my uh mental health podcast everyday fray i am talking a lot about and i'm learning a lot about is sort of as this new information is presented and you're going back you know 30 40 50 years through your life and saying okay, the reason I think this today is because, you know, when I was eight, someone told me that and how that then affected everything going forward. And that's for like personal insight and personal growth and personal health. Now imagine someone comes along to see that animal over there. You need to do that same work with them. Like it's it's intimidating, I would think. Well, it is also, uh, it's, it, most people are unlikely to really interrogate that because they've they've internalized these belief systems around how ecosystems work and um, what you the storyline about what you must do. So going back and and um, rewiring these actually it's it's deeper than just saying you need to change your comprehension of coyote it's you need to change your entire orientation of yourself to ever to other animals um 
and the environment and 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 so it's 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 large right <laughs> and and yeah. threatening it, because it is it, it has become a personal way of being in the world and way of understanding the world when someone comes in and tells you um that you're wrong it 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 becomes a personal attack right and so that's what i'm trying to understand right now with the new research is who which of these types of constructs or ways that people have learned to engage with the world are we potentially going to have any traction with by going back and asking them to do exactly that and there are some if you look at the climate literature there are some people who are simply no matter what scientific fact you throw at them they are not going to react uh, respond and renegotiate right yep um and that's i, I it is both profound and upsetting and all kinds of things, but I think it's also very valuable for, for advocates, for educators to recognize that you're not saying, here's the one thing that's going to change your mind. It's recognizing that it's decades of mm-hmm. knowledge and growth that you're trying to undo, and you can't do it overnight, like you've said. Um, and especially in areas where uh, you know, we're talking coyotes, we're talking ecosystems, and you look at the, uh, and I'm still trying to find an expert on this, um, the North American Wildlife uh, concert Model of Conservation, Conservation Model. Yes. And the entire foundation of that, and this is sort of the baseline for almost all conservation programs across our country in the United States, is that wildlife are a resource. And should be used. Well, and the other... That, that is yeah, one of the building blocks of it. Yes, and so that, that really influences a lot of... I think there, there are several things that, it, that, that influence what we see now in the, the landscape. And the North American model for um, wildlife conservation is one of them. Um, so there's a paper on, by Nelson et al. on that. Uh, and the, the part of, part of the... Part of the issue there was that the original model was developed at a time of complete resource depletion. And so in order to reestablish any kind of prey that was available for people to use, their only mechanism was to kill predators. And that became embedded as, well, this is what we do. This is how it's top-down control. And then the, the underlying assumption there is that we actually need to be maintaining prey like deer and moose and elk specifically like you say as a resource for us to use and the compete the, the competitors for that are obviously predators so there's there's the, the science has changed so much since then in understanding that um the systems will actually control themselves we don't need to be in there controlling and that certainly in that that certainly became part of the understanding of what we should be doing on the landscape it's just it's it's hangover it's a hangover Right. There's still lots of people who um, who described to me that this is just what you need to do. You need to control mm-hmm. them because they can't control themselves. And, and, and it's all grounded in that model. Well, well I think the other part. But, well, yeah. Well, I think the other part of that, too, is th- that we look at this from our lifetime perspective. Um, yeah. And nature looks at it from a perspective. I don't think our minds could mathematically fathom. <laughs> um like you know, this like, we're 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 a speck on a speck of dust floating through space, right? Like uh, to to try and say, well, 
we need to manage the coyote population in like northwest think, Calgary. I like to think I'm a speck. You're a very shiny speck. A speck on a speck on a speck. <laughs> yeah, on a shiny pink speck. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, anyway. No, but, but then when we start talking about Northwest Calgary, looking at the single den site, like you, it, it's hard to remember that it took billions of chances and years and evolution and adaptation and change to get to the point that there is this den site and we think we can manage it just like an off on switch. Uh, so, you know, it's, yeah. that's almost a philosophical or ph- ph- oh, geez. Uh, it's been a philosophical thank you. question. Yes. Well, and and but um, we don't have the models for comprehending that scale, right? And mm-hmm. and we don't know. Most people aren't aware how long something like coyote has been on the landscape a million years in North America, um, becoming what it is, and and then therefore that drives why it's so able to live anywhere and then get yep. into trouble, right? Most of us can't and most can't think on that kind of scale, but we don't have the models. We're, we're, we're really, I think, and, and the education is changing now, but we're, we're, we're sort of taught to think in these smaller increments. Our whole economic system is, is, is based on these very sh- much shorter time cycles. Right. So just look at Y2K. I think that's a perfect yeah. example. <laughs> no one ever thought that we might need to count past 1999. Um, now I, I I think to wrap up, like, I mean, we've kind of gone off track a little bit from how the media writes about coyotes to you being a pink speck on a speck on a speck floating through space. Um, and the philosophy behind, uh, evolution and adaptation. But, um, when we talk about this, you and I, we've stood next to each other, uh, at conferences. Uh, we've talked about this before. We've both been interviewed, and I always walk away wondering, like, could I have done more? Could I have said more? Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, I find we're, we're constantly repeating ourselves, even as we learn more. What do you see in the next few years in terms of our ability to to maybe finally get through to greater audiences or to larger sort of sets of principles in terms of how we view coyotes and how we view ecosystems. Is, is this something that is achievable for us? I mean, it depends what you're, are, are we going to reach a perfect world where nobody's killing any coyotes? Uh, I, I think that's a long ways off, but I think there is, I teach a class in animal geography and if there's any hope it's in watching what happens when these students come in at the beginning and um, and go through the course and they learn about really, you know, human animal relationships. And, and I see the hunger to understand these things. The, the, um, the compassion is, is I think palpable. A lot of them want to do something different. Um, I think, many of them have been flooded through their lives with the current generation with things like animal planet or other, um, media, you know, social media sources that have exposed a lot of these, um, you know, situations that people aren't really comfortable with things we want to change. And so there's a real hunger for it. And, 
um, I certainly noticed through the class, a lot of them changed their perspective. They report to me, they've changed their perspective on, um, on animals as well. So those that come in with really no real thinking about it with the education change. And so I think when we look at that appetite and then we look at the number, the, the the number of ways that we can outreach through social media sources, um, the connection of animals and meaning to, um, to whether it's economics. And I don't mean like using animals to sell products, but I mean, I've had examples here where, uh, certain companies want to add value added. They give their their clients um, access to a blog and they push out messaging on cool wildlife research that's going on in their city, right? And so I think there's all these other venues that, that we can tap into and there's um, a desire to do things differently. And so I'm optimistic in in that um, you know, in that way that things will move, you know, at, but at, at the same time, there are, are lots of sectors of society, <laughs> the various societies that I'm encountering that, you know, um, uh, leave me, you know, just dis- pretty disenchanted, but on balance, I, I feel like there is, we are on the verge of paradigm shifts around how we treat other animals and our comprehension of it. If you're interested in reviewing Shelley's work, I've posted a link you can follow on this week's Defender Radio blog at thefurbears.com. And I strongly encourage you writers and communicators to check out her media content analysis study for an eye-opening read. That's the show for this week, folks. For Defender Radio, I'm Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.